Good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's your host here, Daniel, and we are back, back with a bang for the Way of the Boat podcast. Today, we are diving deep into the world of arrows, a world which can sometimes be mind-boggling and quite hard to digest. We are diving into arrow tuning. We are exploring the design and engineering of arrows and their particular parts, say points, veins, pins, and the impact, most importantly, the impact all of this has on our shooting, our group, and of course, our scoring. And to guide us through this, we have a member of a particular company who've been developing and pioneering arrow design and engineering for over a hundred years now. Eastern Archery, in case you haven't heard of Eastern before, have been running for 101 years, releasing arrows like the ACE, the XX75, the jazz arrows that you might have shot at your beginner's course, countless other arrows, including, including the X10. Did you know Eastern's arrows have set every world record in archery since 1996. Not bad, eh? Not bad at all. <laughs> and from the Eastern team to guide us through this, we have no other than George Tetchmikoff on the show. George helped design the X10 Arrow. He's had incredible impact in Eastern, but not only that. You might have not only shot arrows that George has helped design, you've probably heard of George's voice at some point in time, whether that is on Eastern's podcast, or more like being the announcer at several Olympic Games in the archery events, including London 2012. So without further ado, let's just dive straight in to the conversation with George and dive deep into the world of arrows. This episode is brought to you with Easton as part of their celebration of over 100 years of excellence in archery. Welcome to the show, George. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Way of the Bow podcast to explore your absolute deep understanding of arrows, of, of archery in general too. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a great honor to be with you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to so many of my friends in uh, GBR. Certainly. So, George, years upon years of being an archer first and foremost, then diving into the intricacies of arrows and then developing what is the most like renowned arrow of history, the X-10. So first, to go back to those early days, pre, say, 95, before the X-10 started, what was your experience of archery? Was it all field or was it target too? Uh, target and field. I started as a uh, as a field archer, um, a lot of field archery in the northeastern United States, and less target archery at that time. And then um, started shooting target archery as an indoor archer first. My first target archery event was an indoor event uh, in the state of Pennsylvania in the U.S. And then from there, um, started shooting outdoors and started becoming competitive fairly quickly with the thankful help of coaches like Dick Tone, and later Lloyd Brown, who you probably know quite well. <laughs> I do indeed, yeah. And, um, you know, my archery career started in 1983 when I picked up my first bow. In fact, I, I actually used my first paycheck straight out of university in my first job to buy my first bow, which was a, a bit of rubbish. But <laughs> I, picked up a, I picked up a Hoyt the following year and never looked back. <laughs> Brilliant. I, th I think a lot of people can do that with Hoyt, can't they? <laughs> Well, I, well, it's, it's, uh, it certainly makes it a, a bit smoother of a transition. Yeah. Um, in the United States in the, uh, in the 1980s, we had a national sport festival. And the national sport festival then became the United States Olympic Festival. So if you were a regional archer from the north, south, east, or west portion of the United States, your goal, one of your goals, might have been to make that travel team that would go to a central location to compete. And it wasn't just for archery, it was for all Olympic and Pan-American sports. So not just uh, the usual Olympic sports, but also sports that would like to be Olympic sports, like bowling, for example, things like that, hmm. um, 10-pin bowling. And um, uh, 
what we had was a great opportunity back then. Um, I made the East team in 1991, and that was my first experience going to a really big event besides U.S. Nationals. So this was a multi-sport event. It was in Los Angeles, California. Uh, that's actually where I first met um, our, our good friend Lloyd Brown, as well as uh, had a meeting with Jim Easton, who invited me to come work for him. And uh, as an engineer, that seemed like a dream, you know, as an archer and an engineer. And it, it certainly was. It uh, gave me a great opportunity. And it was one of those things that uh, it was just the confluence of opportunity and effort. A uh, few other stories go with it, but I'm not going to bore your listeners with that. <laughs> I'll just say that uh, that was my uh, sort of uh, opportunity to really take what is a hobby and a sport and turn it into a, into work. And to be sure, you know, that comes with some that comes with some risks because when you turn your hobby into a sport, uh, it's no longer fun as much. It's work. And, uh, you know, we worked every, every day, uh, some 12 hour days for many years to, to make things like the X10, to make things like the pin knock and so many other innovations that without Jim Easton's vision and effort, uh, would never have been done. So earlier in the introduction, you sort of credited me with that, but the truth is it's a team effort. So many people had so many contributions to what became that product um, that no one person can or should take credit for it. If anyone should, it's Jim Easton and his his vision and his uh, insistence on letting his products become obsoleted by his own people. You know that was that was his his business philosophy. We might make the best thing now, but if we're not the ones who are uh, obsoleting that product and Im- improving upon it, somebody else might. And so it's our responsibility to do that. That was his uh, business philosophy and personal philosophy. Mm. And and in that, in order to have that innovation, I guess doing some research, there was moments where you had to kind of go to a clean slate and begin. So prior to the X10, the main kind of target or the best target arrow was the ACE, which is still yes. renowned. And that is super light for for my spine. It's like 6.7 grains per inch. Yeah. But for the X10, didn't that then go back and go heavier? The entire industry at that time was trying to go lighter and lighter. Our main competitor in the business uh, was Beeman. And uh, we ended up buying Beeman, uh, as, as you may know. But Beeman was going lighter and lighter. And in 1992, at the Barcelona Olympic Games, Vladimir Ishev, the renowned world champion from Russia, came up to me and he said, hey, George, look at these. And he showed me some prototype arrows that he'd been given by Beeman. And they were on the order of, <clears throat> excuse me, on the order of four and a half grains per inch. Wow. At a spine value approaching uh, about a 400. Super light, super very, very thin walls and barreled. And he was having a miserable time with them because Barcelona was windy and they were drifting like crazy. So I set him up with the what was the prototype of the X-10. Uh, the original prototype of the X-10 was built upon the ACE. And it was what I called a big barrel ACE. It was a heavy ACE. You see, what had happened was we had done a lot of work in the lab to establish that a heavier arrow was going to be a better choice for recurve bows because of frequency matching. And without going too deep into the weeds on this, you do need to match the frequency characteristics of the arrow with those of the bow, especially at the moment when the arrow and the string separate. And that key finding led us to understand that lighter and lighter was not better. It was incompatible with bowstring frequencies from recurve bows, which are largely unchanged even today, even with faster recurve limbs from Win and Win and from Hoyt and other other makers, those fundamentals are still very much in the same envelope as they were back in the 90s. And so um, we took what at the time might have seemed like an unusual move, moving away from what the rest of the industry was doing and going to a heavier arrow with a higher ballistic coefficient greater energy storage, and most importantly, a lot more forgiveness for finger release Mm. because of the specific design of the rear of the arrow that actually behaves a bit like a shock absorber. Um, We had done a ton of work in order to understand uh, 
the variables between archers at the moment of finger release. It might not surprise many of our listeners to understand that every archer's finger release characteristic is like a fingerprint. It is absolutely individual to the archer. No two are precisely the same. However, for a given archer, most of their releases can be characterized as being mostly the same once they reach a certain point of achievement. Yeah. And so we were able to characterize and measure exactly what needed to be done to make the arrow behave in a forgiving manner. Uh, a nebulous word, forgiving. Everybody uses it. <laughs> but, you know, we had a very specific definition of what that meant. It basically means letting you get away with murder <laughs> in terms of... In terms of uh, uh, inconsistency within one's performance envelope for a, an accomplished shooter. You know, you might not spot it, you might not see it, but you could measure it. And so the X-10 brought together a bunch of different technologies, including some things we developed for the aerospace industry, and allowed us to create an arrow that was, at the time, and still today, uh, the ideal solution for a finger release with a recurve bow, given that recurves have a certain length, certain frequency and arrows have a certain length and frequency and to be honest people have not changed how they release the string in a substantial manner since 30 40 years or actually much longer yeah and so um you know the product has has been performing at the highest level since that time and it's gratifying to see even today as we speak today right now in antalya turkey um you know, we're seeing top archers performing with that product, and uh, I expect we'll continue to see see them do so for some time. Mm, very much so, and keep them keep the medals coming in as well in the world records. So you you mentioned then about frequency. I'm really curious, what exactly do you mean by frequency, and how does that affect the arrow? Is it what you mentioned about the string movement, or is it the the flex of the arrow, the spine? So the answer is yes to both of those. Um, what we're talking about is if, if we were to look at the bow as a musical instrument, right, and we were to strum the bow string, we'd have a certain frequency coming from that, uh, that strum of the string. Similarly, if we were to take the arrow and strum the arrow, the arrow would have its own natural frequency, both in, in three phases. One the first phase is when you're at full draw, the arrow is fixed to the string and fixed to the arrow rest, or attached. So you have what's called a fixed, fixed beam. Once you release, you have a free fixed beam. The front end is free and comes off the plunger relatively quickly while the rear is still attached to the string. So the rear is being driven by the string, but the string has an amplitude. It's going around your fingers. So it is vibrating already. And as it comes down the power stroke, the arrow is along for the ride to a degree. If the arrow's natural frequency doesn't come close to the string's natural frequency, there's a mismatch at the moment that they release from each other, the string and the arrow. And what we were trying to do was create a situation where we had a more harmonious disengagement at that moment. Uh, not, to, not to sound um, esoteric about it, but uh, having those two things cooperate with each other gave us much more forgiveness. And... And so we can think of that, and, and the third phase is, of course, the free flight of the arrow, where it's what we'd call a free, free beam. And the arrow then fishtails all the way down to the target, as you've seen in high-speed video. You know, at the London Olympic Games, we had some brilliant high-speed video, which hopefully you may have seen from Lord's yeah. Cricket Ground, and hopefully many of our listeners have had a chance to see that. And the arrow is actually vibrating all the way to the target. A lot of folks don't realize that that's the case. But when you see the high-speed video and you watch the arrow fly over 70 meters or 90 meters in the old days, the arrow continues to flex all the way to the target. We don't want to have a big disengagement um, discrepancy between that string and that arrow at that moment of release. It's complex. There's a lot of things going on. We had to develop some interesting uh, methods for instrumentation to make uh, rational measurements of that. And uh, you know, we did a lot of work in that area just to understand what was happening, not just visually, but also by measuring the stress on the arrow during flight, uh, which is non-trivial. Uh, it, it required a lot of effort. But I think that the results more or less speak for themselves. Yeah, definitely. So for the listeners to understand 
say the innovation from the ACE to the X10 is one of the main specifics that allow what you've just spoken about, the variable spine, how different parts of the arrow are a different stiffness? Yeah, the X10 is actually an iteration on that variable spine that was originally developed with the ACE. Mm. See, we knew that we knew that a barreled arrow was going to function um, better overall for finger release than a parallel arrow, all things else being equal. So the ACE already had some of that secret sauce baked into it. However, um, we took that and, and turned it up to 11 uh, for the X10. <laughs> and... Um, you know, at the same time, we did go heavier, which also had many benefits. And um, I, I think when you look at the X10 versus the ACE, the ACE today is still an extremely high-performance arrow shaft with really excellent characteristics, particularly outside of the envelope of what you and I might refer to as the, quote, top shooter. Meaning that if you're at a shorter draw length at lighter poundage, the ACE might actually be a better solution than the X10. Uh, if you're, for example, a long draw shooter and you're shooting light poundage, you may also find better results overall with the ACE than the X10. The ACE is still quite relevant today, and that is one reason why uh, it is still in the product line. The X10 did not obviate the ACE. The X10 supplemented uh, the, the overall Easton product line by providing archers with an alternative if those archers weren't the Larry Godfrey's of the world, mm. you know, with uh, with the canonical 50 pounds and 30-inch draw, that that sort of thing. Amazing. And you, you even just in speaking there, you've highlighted one, one extremely special thing about Easton is how you don't just produce one arrow or two arrows. You produ produce so many different arrows catering to everyone from different levels to different types as well whether it's trad you've got field and that's one beautiful thing that i found about eastern and why i of course shoot eastern too so you mentioned previously about how lighter arrows are affected by the wind and this is something we get asked a lot about the effect wind has on arrows we're in the uk obviously wind is very much so a thing here so from my understanding, there's two characteristics. Please go deeper in this if, if there is more. There's the weight of the arrow, but also the thickness or thinness of the arrow. Is that what affects wind? And how does the wind affect the arrow? So let's consider, <clears throat> let's consider what is affected by wind. First, the archer is affected by the wind mm -hmm. because the archer can feel the wind and the archer's stance and the archer's position on the line and the archer's feeling for stability is affected by the wind. The wind is blowing on the bow and the stabilizers as well as everything else. So let's consider standing in a, in a gale and we are looking at a situation where the gale is coming in at uh, 90 degrees from either left or right. We're going to feel that a lot, right? We're going to have that feeling on our body. Our clothing will be fluttering. Our hair will be, if we have it, moving. Our um, overall condition will be, oh, I'm feeling the wind. I'm hearing it in the trees. I'm seeing it on the flags. I can, I can experience this because I'm immersed in it. And I'm, I'm not even getting into the arrow flight yet. That actually has a substantial impact on the archer's mental game and some things that happen as the archer is coming through the shot. And so we need to consider that factor first. Okay. The second factor is, of course, what you wanted to talk about, which is what's the arrow doing in free flight? The diameter of the arrow matters a lot. The shape of the point actually matters more than I'd like it to. Ah. Even though we're, we're talking vastly subsonic speeds here, the shape of the point has an influence on how the arrow flies. Also, obviously, the fletching and the fletching choice, as well as factors such as uh, vein area, offset, uh, the stiffness of the material. All those things matter. The easy button on all of this is for outdoor target archery, spin wing veins, the originals, still seem to be the optimal solution um, because of their combination of relative forgiveness if they touch the arrow rest, relative forgiveness in varying wind directions, low mass, and their, their overall behavior. Um, 
Many other solutions have been tried in the past, and many other veins certainly work. But um, the, you know, I hate to put it this way, but when you look at what the Koreans are using, they're using spin wing veins. Mm. And those folks, um, you know, they perform at a certain level. Certainly, they'll try other things from time to time, but they seem to keep coming back to spin wing veins. And without getting too deep into the weeds as to the why, I will say that, uh, you know, that's actually an excellent solution and still is today. Um, even though like the apocryphal story of the butter of the, uh, of the bumblebee, we don't completely understand how they behave. <laughs> we do know that they work really well. So now I'm joking just a bit because we do, we do understand how they work. But if you talk to experts in some other fields and they look at spin wing veins, uh, I'll give you a quick, uh, a quick story. Yeah, go we, on. uh, we had, a, we had a, a consulting company come in one time in the mid nineties. And, uh, this was a company that was involved at a very high level. In, in ballistics, and one of their consulting engineers sat down, and I handed him an, an arrow, an ACE at the time, with spin wings on it, and he looked at the veins and goes, oh, those couldn't possibly work. What is that? This was because he came from uh, an area of ballistics that uh, did not involve flexible veins, uh, they involved solid veins, and his data set said, Something like that can't work. He was quite wrong, of course, uh, but, you know, there you go. You have to be careful about preconceived notions in this game. Mm. Where I was was talking about the, the role of, of the variables in the arrow shaft. So just to get it back on track, we have the diameter of the arrow, of course. That does matter a great deal. The X-10 has a smaller percentage of surface area than other arrows. By the time you get done with all of these things, in that crosswind, the heavier arrow that carries more energy, within reason, is going to perform better than the lighter arrow. All other variables the same. So front of center balance the same. Let's say that we had an, a, a lightweight arrow with a slightly heavy point or a heavy arrow with a medium point. It turns out that the heavier arrow is still going to outperform the higher FOC arrow within reason. Now, you know, one of the things that a lot of folks want to chase is, well, I want a light arrow because I can't reach 70 meters with my 38-pound, 27-inch draw. And they'll try to stuff a lot of point weight into that thing to try to get the weight, to get, try to get the FOC higher, thinking that it's going to work better in the wind. And up to a point, it may. However, what we have found is that you really don't want to go above a certain amount of front-of-center balance because if you do, you actually create a situation where the buckling of the arrow at the moment of release can be more variable with a heavier point and less forgiving. Hmm. And so what we have always recommended has been on the order of 11 to 16, 18%. When you start getting into the 20s, other strange things start happening. You start getting uh, vertical spread that is unexpected. And that has to do with what's going on as the arrow is tipping over at the height of its flight. And you get different effects for different weights, but you can also get different effects because the arrow can bend vertically on release with the heavier point. And you get other effects that, that can be hard to track down, but are definitely showing up on the scorecard. So, you know, again, we don't recommend crazy amounts of FOC. Um, we, we do recommend that you stay within an envelope. And if you look on the Easton chart, or if you go to EastonArchery.com and look up any specific product, you'll notice that there's a range of point weight recommended. And those ranges of point weights are intentive to provide you with the correct FOC for those things. Mm. So, um, but to get back to your, you know, your point, um, the, the biggest effect, of course, is going to be the surface area of the arrow shaft when we're talking about a 90 degree wind, you know, what we'd call a full value wind. Yeah. And so the, the less, less is more in this case. Um, but again, you know, you've got other, other factors to consider here. Um, one of those factors is what's your experience in, in playing the wind? You know, back in the days of the aluminum arrow, or as you'd say, the aluminium arrow, forgive me, <laughs> you'd find that the archer really had to have a very dialed in wind game. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time talking to my friend Daryl Pace about this subject. Daryl, of course, won two Olympic games, um, one of them his first one was with aluminum arrows and his second one was with an AC arrow. 
And he had a big difference of experience with the AC arrow versus the aluminum arrow because of the huge amount of difference in drift. The best, the best wind reader would be the winner back in the 1976 era when Daryl won his first Olympic Games. Hmm. The AC arrow took away the need to have such an accurate reading of the wind by the time the 1984 Olympic Games came around. And Daryl relates to me just what a big difference that made because he'd still find himself aiming off to an aluminum value and then the arrow would go precisely where he aimed, whereas <laughs> an aluminum arrow would have drifted into the gold. Um, so that, you know, that was a reset for him and for other experienced shooters of the time. But it did remove, it sort of, it gave a bit of equality to everybody on a certain level. You still had to play the wind, to be sure, and you still had to do all of the other things that's, that's required, but it did reduce the, the problem that a lower pounded shooter might have mm-hmm. in terms of being competitive. And it reduced the problem that a slightly shorter draw shooter might have. It reduced it. It didn't make it go away, but it did reduce it. It leveled the playing field just a bit for a lot more shooters. And the scores reflected that at the time. A lot more of the top shooters shot better, and the middle of the pack increased considerably as well. And so, you know, um, one might argue that maybe it was a bit more pure to have to play the wind so intentively. But if you want to take that to the nth degree, would be back shooting hickory arrow shafts. <laughs> that's, that's very true. I really, I really like that. And I've got a really stronger understanding now. One, one thing that just popped to mind. So you mentioned about the point weight. You mentioned the shape, but also I assume the material does affect as well. So say, for example, Easton's tungsten points, aren't they smaller but have the same say weight than other versions does all that weight being in one point actually have a better effect well let me tell you the story of the tungsten point briefly i i first developed a tungsten point because i did want to have a further front of center balance with a given package now tungsten is 2.2 the tungsten we use which is a ballistic grade tungsten um, it's used in in munitions it is 2.2 times more dense than the steel alloys that are commonly used in points, which are 12L14 lead alloy or uh, precipitation hardening stainless steel. Those two metals are very similar in density. Tungsten is approximately 2.2 times more dense. Now, that means the part itself, a 100 grain point made of tungsten, has 2.2 times less volume than the analogous steel point will have. It also means, by the way, that your tolerances in machining have to be 2.2 times more precise or you're going to get a weight fluctuation. So it's it's harder to make yeah. accurately and therefore uh, more expensive. The material itself is quite expensive, but the machining required to make it perform properly is also um, quite a consideration. So I, I have to tell you that the reality is that a tungsten point um, does afford a bit more effective front of center balance. But as some of my friends like to say, is that juice worth the squeeze? (laughs) And the answer is, for most shooters, probably not. Where the tungsten point is useful is durability. Um, It is because you have less leverage in the front of the arrow shaft, and because some of you in the UK continue to insist on shooting on 14th century straw target butts. (laughs) No comment. Forgive. Yeah, no comment. Um, the arrow is really given a lot of stress. And, um, you know, having a long point out there is a big lever arm, <clears throat> excuse me, for damage to the arrow shaft. And so in order to um, provide for durability for your expensive arrows, uh, the tungsten point can have some advantages. Now, that's to say that... Um, it's not just the UK, of course. A lot of Stramit is still shot in Europe on the continent. Most of the rest of the world shoots foam targets. World Archery requires them for its premier events. And foam targets are certainly much more forgiving to the arrows. But, you know, a lot of clubs still today in GBR are going to be shooting on the more economical, uh, at least uh, for the club on the short term, more economical straw targets. And, um, you know, that... Uh, continues to be an issue. So for 
for folks who find themselves having to shoot the, uh, the, the straw targets. Anyway, at the end of the day, um, you're not just getting a bit more performance from the tungsten point, you're getting arguably better durability uh, to deal with those, those target butt situations. Uh, if you're shooting foam, steel points are probably the way to go from an economy standpoint. They certainly perform nearly as well as tungsten points for the vast majority of shooters. And I wouldn't hesitate to use steel points. Um, you know, the Easton steel point is a precipitation-hardened stainless steel. It's a very durable point. Um, but if you're shooting in a heavy crosswind and you're hitting one of those targets that's stopping your arrow in four centimeters, you're looking at a lot of stress. And so the tungsten point has some advantages there. Mm, I have never considered that, and that is really interesting and kind of maybe sold me a bit more on tungsten on tungsten <laughs> well you know here's the thing I, and to be quite honest my i've always been very concerned about the perceived cost of entry in our sport as you pointed out earlier easton makes an arrow for everybody these days today we have the avance arrow shaft we have the SuperDrive micro we have the pro comp we have the ace for compound shooters, we have the Pro Tour and we have the X10. And that is a continuum of price with good performance within each one of those price envelopes. And not to sound like a salesman here, but you have to understand that for the vast majority of shooters, something like the Easton Avance as a club level shooter is really good value for money. Very durable, extremely uh, good tolerances. It's an all carbon arrow, so you can't use it everywhere in the GBR. But from a performance standpoint, you're getting a great amount of performance for a relatively low price. And for a great number of shooters shooting recreationally, a product like that is a really good idea. They should not feel compelled to go out there and buy a set of X10s or even ACEs if they're enjoying archery at a club or a recreational level, or if they don't have a budget that will support the higher level arrows, they can actually buy something like an Avance and get about 90% of the performance of an ACE at maybe 50 or 35% of the price. And so, you know, having those options is a good thing. And I, I, I think people need to understand that they, especially when they're starting out, um, are better served paying for coaching than they are for really expensive yeah, arrows. Def definitely agree with that. And you've just touched on something that was a big topic from everyone we've spoke to when I said we were going to be on the podcast. The discontinuation of the ACC has sent a few ripples into the UK because a lot of people shot them. So from an Eastern's perspective, what is the go-to now around that price point? Is it now the pro comp that you have recurve spines? So yes, the answer quickly is, well, first let's understand if you're shooting on a multi-use field that is still requiring the use of a arrow with an aluminum component, then the pro comp is, is the obvious go-to strictly on the basis of both its price and its performance. Yeah. And in fact, it outperforms the ACC in every way, in every metric. It is a bit more expensive. Yeah. And so, you know, that I'm not going to, I'm not going to, the elephant in the room is, yeah, it's more expensive than an ACC was. It's very good value for money. Um, you're, you're getting an arrow that has very high performance, extremely tight tolerances, and very, very good durability. Um, and it works really well for recurve shooters who were previously shooting the ACC. Now, between us, I believe that, um, it is unfortunate that Easton had to make that decision because I think that um, you have to understand that to make the ACC was the equivalent of an entire arrow factory just dedicated to that product. Mm. And really, the ACC was really only being sold in a limited space. You know, back in the 90s, in the late 80s when it was introduced and into the 90s, there was a lot of demand for that product. But now... Um, there are many other <clears throat> alternatives, including from Easton, such as the SuperDrive series that took the place of the ACC. And so to maintain that infrastructure was extremely expensive. Everything we're doing is made in USA. We are dealing with, um, you know, the costs of doing business in a, in a responsible manner, environmentally responsible, responsible to the employees of the company who are getting paid a fair wage 
who work very hard to do what they do. But, you know, every day Easton has to, what they say, earn the right to make their product in the USA. You know, it's, it's the easy button to say, oh, we'll go make it in China, something like that. Mm. But the reality is the Easton family is committed to manufacture yeah. in the United States, which is their roots. And um, sometimes hard economic choices have to be made in order to support that imperative. And um, the ACC was, quite frankly, um, extremely expensive to make given the volumes that it was provided at. And so the choice was uh, raise the price accordingly or um, figure out a way to provide a product that would serve the user of the ACC with an acceptable substitute. And I think that the at the end of the day, um, I personally wish we could have kept the ACC in the line. I think perhaps you may see some developments in the future where Easton addresses the specific need for a more economical dual material aero shaft um, that serves that same market and is at a lower price point, something between, say, the Avance and the Procomp. Um, so stay tuned on that one. But as things stand right now, you're looking at a situation where it was just not economically viable to continue to produce the ACC for, not to put too fine a point on it, basically the limited number of users that the product had. And, and that is the, the reality of the situation. Well, thanks a lot for sharing that. And I'm definitely going to be tuned in waiting for a potential announcement in the future. <laughs> well, remember that, that our goal at Easton is to have an arrow for everybody. Yeah. And everybody includes our many users in GBR who need that dual use arrow, but don't want to break the bank trying to get what they need. So yeah. uh, definitely have your interests in mind when we are looking at what we're doing with product in the future. Brilliant. So I've just asked a big question we had. Another big question I've we've had, and I one myself, is we spoke about the X10, which was mainly in mind produced for recurve. Obviously, Bebo is in the rise and seems to be growing at an unbelievable pace, especially in the UK. How does, especially if you're string walking, how does that affect the arrow with the pressure on the rest and, and the spine, etc.? Have you had much research into that? Yeah, we have. And I will tell you that there are a lot of variables with Barebow that, that uh, make it uh, both the fun challenge that it is for so many shooters and the very difficult <laughs> tuning, tuning dilemma that many of your Barebow listeners uh, have experienced. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, the Avance Arrow that Easton makes really is an excellent solution for Barebow. And I'll tell you why. Okay. The X10 is designed with that rear taper. The rear taper is designed to function for a canonical Olympic recurve release. Certainly it functions well for barebow, but it can make tuning a little more tricky with that big vertical component from string walking. If you want to try to have a more straightforward, less effort required tune, I believe that a parallel shaft might serve most barebow shooters better. Sure, the very best barebow shooters are shooting something like an ACE or an X10, but for a barebow shooter who is trying to minimize the number of distractions and trying to get good scores as quickly as possible so that they can focus upon the things that matter such as what is your crawl, how are you aiming, what are you doing. The Avance is really an excellent solution for the vast majority of barebow shooters because, first off, every shaft is, um, just like other Eastern Arrows, spine-matched perfectly, the weight is dead on, and the spine around the shaft is really, really accurate. Now, for those of you who are shooting barebow but require the use of a dual composition arrow like a Procomp, that's your solution. The Procomp, uh, again, parallel design, very easy to tune for most barebow configurations. The X10 and the ACE are, quite frankly, very good solutions for barebow, but harder to tune. Meaning that if your technique is in flux or you're working on some things, finger pressure, things like that, you're going to have more variables 
with those arrows than you will with a parallel arrow. Take some of the variables out with a all parallel arrow as you're developing especially, and I think you'll find that later you can take advantage of the other characteristics of products like the ACE for the bare bow. The other uh, option is the SuperDrive Micro. The SuperDrive Micro is another all-carbon arrow shaft, but it has some really uh, excellent specifications and characteristics that lend itself extremely well to bare bow shooting. So there are, again, choices for everybody. Um, we have an arrow for every shooter from the rank beginner to the Olympian, and within that continuum of product, the SuperDrive Micro and the Avance, my personal favorites as a recommendation for people starting out with bare bow, taking it all the way to the world championship level. For the purpose of trying to um, develop a very high-level bare bow shooter, that's when you can start looking at, at some of the higher-level arrows, I believe. Mm. Wow. That is an absolute nugget of wisdom that I'm going to take to heart because I'm currently shopping for <laughs> new arrows, and I was on the fence about the Pro Comp, so... Uh, that has definitely helped. Thanks, George. <laughs> no, I, I really think that, you know, for those of you who really have to be able to shoot in a multi-sport venue and need that uh, dual composition, the, the AC Arrow, the Pro Comp is really a very good choice. And it's quite durable. But there's a, there's what's going to be going in my basket later. <laughs> one, one of the final questions that we got asked a lot about is just tuning in general not necessarily very specific aspects of tuning but mainly what people whether they've bought the first set of arrows or second set of arrows what are the considerations they need to think of when it comes to tuning in relation to their arrow let's first understand what we mean when we talk about tuning good good point tuning is fundamentally tuning is getting all of the elements of the bow and arrow system into a harmony where they are functioning together as a system. Now, you could break those three elements down as the bow, the arrow, and the archer, because each one of them has at least equal weight in the equation. The archer, in terms of their consistency, in terms of their ability to perform the same way every time, because taken together, just the bow and the arrow, they're mechanical. You can put them in a machine and Generally speaking, a given arrow out of a given bow will always go in the same hole when launched from a machine. Now, a group of arrows might not if the specifications from arrow to arrow vary, but the bow will pretty well do its job consistently. The arrow, if you buy a dozen Easton arrows, you're getting accurate spine, you're getting accurate weight, you're getting accurate straightness, particularly in the knock end where it really matters. That's going to perform well. So the big variable is the geotoxonic interface, the connection between the bow and the ground. That's you and me, bub. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, when we're tuning, what we're doing is we're getting the other two elements to work well with us, mm. right? And that is the fundamental aspect. It, we cannot have a good performance if we aren't matched in all three characteristics. If the bow is too heavy, if the bow is too short, if the bow is um, just not the right fit for us. If you're talking about a compound bow, if the draw length is wrong, things like that. Uh, for the bare bow shooter, if the balance of the bow is wrong, uh, if they have to dodge the bottom limb every time they release, whatever. There are factors that, that come into play. But the biggest variable is the, the human variable. And so what we're trying to do when we're tuning is creating a situation where we minimize the impact of the human variable, to put it simply. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the arrow to leave the bow consistently within the limits of our ability to release the string and not have the back end of the arrow whack into the arrow rest on the way out. And that's why you have to choose the correct spine. As the arrow is vibrating out of the bow, as it is cycling, as it's bending, you want to time it so that the back of the arrow is swinging away from the arrow rest for a recurve finger shooter or for a bare bow shooter to a degree. Mm. Now, the bare bow shooter's job, that's harder because you've got that vertical component going on. But you still want good clearance if you can get it, right? And so... What we are trying to do is create a situation where we have consistent departure of the arrow from the bow, 
and good downrange results. Now, we have 16 spine values for certain models of arrow so that you can select the correct spine value that will depart the bow in the expected manner. However, another big variable that a lot of people do not take advantage of is small weight changes on weight adjustable bows can have a big benefit to the tune of the system. You might think automatically, oh, well, I've got to select the correct spine and maybe adjust the point weight to get it to behave a certain way. But you often forget as a shooter that you've got a very powerful tool. It's called a set of wrenches. And you can use that tool to make small adjustments. And the lighter the overall system, by the way, in terms of draw weight, the greater the impact of this. I have had success in making big changes in one quarter turn on the limb bolts when we're talking about, I, I go to Japan a lot and I do a lot of coaching yeah. there. And I work with a lot of shooters with shorter draws and lighter weight. Small adjustments to the weight can make a big difference. And generally those adjustments are almost always down slightly, which has a lot of benefits. Making the bow just a skosh lighter can make a big impact on both the ability of the archer to get a clean release and also to maybe reduce their fatigue, to reduce their injury potential. A lot of people are trying to shoot the absolute maximum weight that they can shoot, and they don't need to do that. So I know I digress a little bit by bringing that up, but we need to consider that tuning has many variables. Now, the fact that tuning has many variables is also a pitfall for us because if we try to manipulate too many variables at once, we get a very difficult situation to understand. And so when we're looking at a tuning situation, I like to do things in an orderly way. I like to write down all of my measurements so that if I change more than one thing, I can get back to where I was without having to guess at where I was. Every time I make an adjustment, I like to write it down. My goldfish memory does not allow me to recognize eight steps later that, yeah, I put four turns on my biter plunger. <laughs> so I try to document. Once we've documented things, then we can start making changes to specific variables that will allow us to have a cause and effect in a clear way that gives us a good understanding of, okay, I did this. I moved my knocking point up an eighth of an inch and my grouping got better. Now, if I move it another eighth of an inch, does my grouping get even, even better? If I move it down a certain amount, what does this do to my grouping? Now, I've moved it six or eight times, and I know that at one point I had really good grouping. If I didn't write that down, I'm not going to be able to find that very easily. So, you know, I really like to document these things. Now, the tuning process really starts with, as I mentioned, documentation. Write down your brace height, write down your you know, your knocking point position, how many turns you've got on your plunger, all of those variables so that you can get back to whatever set condition you want to. The other goal of tuning, of course, is at the end of the day, really good grouping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what really matters. So, you know, you may find that every tuning guide out there says, do a fundamental setup. And your canonical fundamental setup for a right-handed shooter is uh, the arrow point's going to be a little bit to the left, uh, as you look down the string, you're going to have a knocking point that's going to be a little bit above center. For a recurve bow, your tiller is going to be set to slightly positive, um, meaning that the bottom limb is going to be just a skosh heavier than the top limb because we have an asymmetric pull on the string. You know, two fingers below, one finger above for most shooters, not shooting bare bow. <laughs> and, um, you know, all of these things that, that we all know from from looking at uh, variable various resources that are out there. And I will tell you that sometimes the best grouping situation is not by the book. <laughs> and I think that that might be obvious to some, some of you listening. Um, for example, uh, the American archer, Butch Johnson always got his best grouping with what you and I would call a weak tune. Um, some of the highest scores I've ever seen from the American archer, Justin Hewish. He was inside center. He didn't mean to be by the way, but he was. So, you know, the point is that various things can be manipulated on the bow, but at the end of the day, it's the archer that has the biggest influence on these things. And you must be willing to do whatever is needed to get the best grouping. 
And that may mean that it's not what, you know, the book says is, is a canonical setup. Be open to those uh, possibilities. Now, one great, one great thing, uh, and also sad thing for me, is we only basically shoot 70 meters outdoors. Yeah. 50 if you're shooting bare bow and, you know, compound. But I'm, I'm speaking as an Olympic recurve shooter. We're looking at 70 meters. It used to be that I had to have a tune that would work well from 12 meters out to 90 because I shot field and I shot uh, target with the same basic setup. And that would generate some headaches, <laughs> especially close in on the bunny targets, you know. <laughs> but today, you can dedicate a setup to 70 meters, and that takes a lot of trouble out of the whole equation. Hmm. Um, you can even get away without necessarily having to do your walk-back tune, although I still recommend it because, again, um, what if you're getting some crazy stuff between you and the target? That's going to allow the arrow to be affected more by the wind even if it's grouping. So you want the best arrow flight you can get. And at the end of the day, again, I, I said before, the human variable is the biggest one, but try to reduce the number of variables in the system. You know, if you're getting a, a wild fishtailing of the arrows, it leaves the bow, but it's grouping adequately, you might still want to work on that. Yeah. That sort of thing. Brilliant. And that is such a brilliant overview, George. Massively appreciate that. And I know it's going to go down really well with the listeners. And just in general, the way you approached it and really delivered the archer aspect and how to not always be stuck on the book and to really find your way of the bow, which the podcast is called, and finding what works best for you in your own group. So I absolutely love that. One reason why you want 16 sizes of arrow or seven different models is because there are so many of us out there with so many different arm lengths and chest widths and, um, you know, leverages on the bow, uh, hand pressure, so many variables as, as, as archers have. We want to have a solution that's going to work for that one archer, that one unique application, you know, whether it is Matt Stutzman shooting with his, um, you know, with, without his arms. Or, mm. or it's uh, Larry Godfrey or Allison Williamson shooting at the peak of performance from the standpoint of, you know, the Olympic Games. We want to have an arrow that fits every one of those archers and everybody in between. And all the way down to the, 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 the school kid picking up their bow for the first time and wanting to have a safe experience, right? Something like the Genesis arrow with its massive 20 thou aluminum wall. Having an arrow for everybody is part of Easton's DNA. And I think, mm. um, you know, that includes the price and it includes the performance level. And at the end of the day, we want to make everybody really happy out there and, and maybe not thinking about their arrows, to be quite frank. Um, you know, they can think about the other experience because they don't have to worry about, oh, is this arrow going to behave the same as the next? We don't want that in your subconscious mind. We want you to be confident. And so, you know, part of what Easton is selling to you with a dozen arrows, that is confidence that, yeah. you know, I can, I can focus on the other stuff here. I don't have to focus on, gee, do I need to aim this arrow a little differently than the next one? And I think that that's an important um, service that they provide. Mm. So to really close up the podcast, which has been an absolute thriller, George, I will say, people, it's just started outdoor season here. People might be in the market for some new arrows. Would you recommend people look online to pick their arrow or go to our archery shops in GB or wherever they are in the world who are so core to our sport? Is that what you'd recommend to go and test some out and explore that? On a personal level, let me answer this this way. I believe that a coach hmm. is an extremely important resource because a coach can save you a great deal of time, trouble, and money. The amount that you spend, if you were to be lucky enough to get Lloyd Brown to spend an hour with you or any of the other wonderful coaches that you have in GBR, uh, to give you some guidance to start, even if you have to pay for that, it is well worth the investment. After that, I would say, quite frankly, I would go to a qualified pro shop. You have many of them in, in, in the UK. And I, you know, if I name one, I'm going to, I'm going to um, neglect naming another, so I won't name any. But there are so many wonderful 
you are so fortunate to have that resource. So many wonderful target archery oriented pro shops in GBR. Use that resource because that is the key to a good start. I would not be in this sport, I can tell you assuredly, if it were not for the services of a good pro shop, not when I started out, but when I started to get frustrated and started to run into problems with the first bow that I bought at the time, there was no online sales, but I went to a big box store and I bought a bow, not knowing anything, right? I walked into a pro shop and they welcomed me with open arms. And the reason I'm in this industry today is because of that experience, that pro shop and that coaching that I got initially set me on the trajectory that I have been on for nearly 40 years now. And I will tell you that today the same applies. Sure, I can go to Amazon and I can buy something that, you know, appears to be a good bit of kit. I can buy a, a, an entire set made in China of bow, arrows, etc. But I guarantee you that I will not have the same experience that if I walk into Wales or Quicks or, you know, any other number of wonderful pro shops, Merlin, that you have in the UK. And I believe sincerely that that is a critical aspect of getting the right start in our sport, getting to a good coach and getting, or an instructor, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who's a certified coach. It can be someone who's a really good member of your club who can teach, right? And who's willing to share. Those are really important things in our sport still today. Online shopping, it's great, but some things are meant to have the personal touch of an expert. And I sincerely, personally believe that you're going to be much better served by talking to someone that knows their business and can help you make good selections. And that is true value for money. You will save more in the long run. You'll save more in the short run. You'll save more overall in time, trouble, frustration, etc. Simply by taking that step and working with someone that can help you, that can measure you correctly, that understands what your, you know, your, your uh, stance looks like, all of those things, those are important. And I know that we're going to have some listeners that go, oh, you know, that's not important. I can figure this out myself. I saw a YouTube video, whatever. No, I really believe that there's no substitute for good coaching and no substitute for an honest pro shop that has your interest in mind, which is having you come back as a repeat customer because you had a good experience and you can trust them to give you good advice. They're not trying to sell you what they have on the shelf. They're going to sell you what you need. And you've got many of those, fortunately, in GBR. And I believe sincerely that that is the best path forward for anyone that wants to start in our sport or even someone that's already gotten to a certain point and maybe reach an inflection point where I need to take the next step. Find that coach. And I know that you've got that resource, uh, you know, on the Archery GB uh, website to help find uh, clubs and also help find coaching. Um, that is the investment you should make, in my opinion. What a way to end the podcast, George. Thank you so much. That has been a thrilling end to such an insightful and interesting exploration of arrows of tuning of your like experience your journey and yeah thank you so much for taking time out of your day to really share that with with us well i have a i have a real uh, affinity for great britain and uh you know my first international uh, experience um was uh, involving GBR after the Barcelona 92 games where I was announcing um, my first Olympic Games of six. I had, uh, I had a great experience announcing at the World Indoor in Birmingham in the UK. And, uh, you know, I have such warm memories of, uh, of, of events in the UK and uh, so many friends that I really appreciate the opportunity 
to be able to speak with you here today. And uh, thank you to you and to Archery GB and to everything you are doing to help keep our wow. alive and wow. moving forward. What a podcast. And I, uh, I know really I have learned so much from this. So I have so much gratitude from thank myself, you. but also from Archery GB to George and also to Easton for not only this episode, but for becoming premium sponsors for the 2023 national tour as well as being a supporter for all archery gb youth events this year thank you so much george and also to easton so the way of the bow now is back into a monthly kind of flow we're going to be releasing one episode every month at least one and that is going to be releasing towards the end of each month and our true GB members will be finding out first who is on the show in their members e-zine, the email newsletter all our true GB members get. So until the next show, stay safe, enjoy shooting, and maybe I'll see you at a few competitions soon. <laughs>